All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff, done right. Coming up, how ready should our maritime forces and the industrial base be? Also, the Marine Corps wants to buy nearly three dozen light amphibious warships. The U.S. Navy isn't so sure. Noted commentators Brian McGrath and Dr. Sal Mercogliano join us for an evaluation of future shipbuilding plans and industrial base readiness. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The U.S. and Israel carried out bilateral juniper oak exercises in the eastern Mediterranean between January 23rd and 26th. Part of long-standing juniper exercises between the two countries, juniper oak was a beefed-up version featuring a major display of U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, and Israeli firepower, including the carrier USS George H.W. Bush, more than 140 aircraft, including B-52 bombers, 6,400 U.S. military personnel, 1,500 Israeli troops. Although not officially designated as such, many observers saw the intent of the exercises to be to deter military or nuclear action by Iran. Russian media has been highlighting the actions of the frigate Admiral Gorskov, which entered the Atlantic Ocean around January 15th in company with an oiler. Although reportedly headed for South Africa and exercises with the South African and Chinese navies, the Gorskov reportedly broke away from the oiler and headed towards Bermuda. The Russian Ministry of Defense on January 27th released a video of the ship carrying out a simulated Zircon missile launch off the U.S. eastern seaboard, although some crew members in the video were wearing shorts, indicating their location might be further south. The U.S. Navy has suspended work at four government-owned dry docks in the Pacific Northwest due to seismic risks. The facilities are dry docks numbers 4, 5, and 6 at Puget Sound Naval Shipyard and the Delta dry dock at the Trident Submarine Refit Facility in nearby Bangor, Washington. The Navy told reporters there is, quote, no immediate risk and that the step is strictly preventative. It is not clear what precisely prompted the earthquake risk concerns on facilities, as seismic activity along fault lines has long been a feature of the region. Dry docks four and five were each built in the early 1940s, while dry dock six, which can be used for aircraft carrier overhauls, was completed in 1962. The Banger facility was built in the 1980s. In new ship news, the new destroyer Carl M. Levin, DDG-120, was delivered to the U.S. Navy January 26th from General Dynamics Bath Ironworks. The ship will be commissioned in June in ceremonies at Baltimore, Maryland, before heading west to join the U.S. Pacific Fleet. It's the first destroyer delivered from Bath since the USS Daniel Inouye in March 2021, and only the third Bath-built Arleigh Burke-class destroyer since June 2018. And in the United Kingdom, Fabrication began January 24th at Babcock, Rosyth, Scotland, for the future HMS Active, the second Type 31 frigate for the British Royal Navy. The first, Venturer, is scheduled for launch in late 2023. Three more general purpose Type 31s have been ordered. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. 
Moving to the discussion portion of our show, we are honored to be joined this week by two return guests and friends of the pod, Brian McGrath and Dr. Sal Marcagliano. Brian McGrath is a founding and managing director of the Ferrybridge Group, a first-rate thought leader, navalist, and influencer of responsible men's fashion. Uh, we're excited to have Brian back. Uh, Dr. Sal Marcagliano is an associate professor of history at Campbell University, an adjunct professor at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, a first-rate thinker when it comes to seaborne logistics and maritime issues. Sal, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Brian, you put out a um, blog post that combined a lot of thinking and a lot of talking about um, our seriousness about competition. You know, essentially, we're are we ready for prime time? You um, you linked, um, you, you know, you, you hooked it to a recent CSIS report um, on our uh, on the readiness of the defense industrial base and could they produce the things that needed to be produced in order to compete? Uh, I wanted to start with you and kind of have you frame that argument and discussion. You reference um, some comments that were made at a recent Reagan National Defense Forum. So let's start there, and then uh, Sal will get your thoughts on that issue as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, thanks to both both of the Chris's for having me on today. Uh, I was interested in this subject primarily on the basis of Admiral Cottle's remarks at the Surface Navy Association show. Uh, now, I guess two or a week and a half ago, um, and 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 he really went after the defense industrial base um, and showed some uh, warranted frustration with delivery timelines and uh, uh, the ability to meet requirements that he has, the Navy has, the Defense uh, Department has. Um, but I was really taken aback by the degree to which his comments reflected a, a, a really incomplete understanding of the of the problem. And the problem is, as I cited, uh, uh, very well uh, articulated by the CEO of Lockheed Martin, James Taklet. Taklet. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, um, but he made a statement at the Reagan Forum in early December that I wrote down and I thought was just, it was like God was speaking to Moses, right? And, and not that I'm either God or Moses, but I, it was of that importance. And, and what he said was the, the U.S. industrial base is scoped for peacetime, for efficient peacetime production. And I thought to myself, about what I've experienced in my time in the defense world. And what I have seen is that um, we have created a defense industrial base and a supply to the edges of the empire uh, machine that is brittle. It's incredibly efficient. And as long as it works as it is scoped and planned to do, it does what it is to required to do, which is to replace stocks, to replace obsolescent things, to keep a sufficient industrial base sort of healthy enough to produce what we sort of need over time, as long as this nation is at peace. But we're not at peace. We're far from it. We are not at war with Russia, but we are in war with Russia. And we are deeply in war with Russia. Ukraine 
is fighting a proxy war. Ukraine is fighting the NATO fight, the con conventional NATO fight that we all planned for for a long, long time. Um, and our weapons stocks are being poured rightfully into that country. Weapon stocks that were developed over a long time of efficient peacetime production. So if you create a hole in a production base that was moving for at efficient peacetime production, and you use that those products at a wartime clip, efficient peacetime production is never going to get you back to even square one. We are in a hole and the hole is getting deeper, it's getting deeper. And that's what had me really um, uh, upset enough to write, which was that Admiral Cottle, I, I recognize that he was upset, he's upset about things, but it showed a remarkable level of, of unsophistication about how this, how we got here. We got here by, by, by this really efficient, brittle industrial base chugging along for 30 years and then and then like a like a big load on an electrical plant this big load on the industrial base uh which is the war in, in ukraine is sucking a generator offline and everybody that's in the navy knows what i'm talking about right now and that's that's what's happening the industrial base responding to perceived needs the, uh, the national security uh, uh, apparatus responding to perceived needs of Ukraine and a China buildup, we can't have one generator on the line to provide the load. We have to bring additional generators on the line. And that is, we have to increase defense production capacity. And the Defense Department's not doing that well. Sorry for the monologue. No, it's. A, I mean, it's a good. Um, it, it's a good primer. I would encourage people to read the uh, the entire post, and we'll post a link uh, in our podcast write up. Sal, I want to switch to you because, in many ways, our ability to deliver e even at this peacetime rate suffers from the same problem that our ability to create um, uh, suffers from. Right? I mean, you you and others have been talking about. So Brian is talking about you know sort of on the weapon stock side. But a key a key part of this, even if we did have, um, you, you know, the the weapons that we needed and the armaments that we needed, um, if, if we go to high end competition or or, or God forbid conflict, our ability to to deliver those kind of suffers from the same problems. Um, do you want to talk about that side of it? Yeah, I mean, I'll just talk about the shipyard side and focus on that because I think that's one of the key things that you're seeing right now. So give you an idea, since 2009, the number of shipyards, not just in the United States, but around the world has decreased 40%. You're talking about falling from 321 major shipyards around the world down to 131. And that's a massive consolidation. That means we're building uh, fewer ships, but they're bigger. And more importantly, they're not here. You know, 94% of the ships are being built in Japan, China, Korea, 0.05, not 5%, not half a percent, but 0 0.5, 0 0.05 is being built in the United States. And to build on what Brian's talking about and what he heard, to get the industrial base going, you need to build it not just with DOD money, but it needs to be built with commercial money. There needs to be that infrastructure 
that's in place. There was an article in Proceedings just this other week where the, the winner of the CNO uh, essay contest, the rising historian, Commander uh, Matt Wright, wrote a terrific piece. He called it Just-in-Time Production, and he talks about how we got the three carriers at Midway just in time. And I thought it was an excellent piece. thought it was great. But the one thing he was missing in there, which is not that Matt omitted it, but I think it's omitted from a lot of discussions on the military side, was all the elements that went into it put the industrial base in place prior to DOD building on that. Things like Merchant Marine Acts of 1920, 28, and 36, and the commercial infrastructure that was already building ships so that when you build Hornet in Newport News, you're already building other ships there commercially so you can phase over to that. I think that's one of our biggest problems right now is, is, is the industrial base is lacking because we see this kind of bifurcation between the commercial and the military. And, and I don't think there's a good relationship and discussion from the military side advocating. When the military advocates for, for infrastructure and industrial base, they focus purely on the military for good reasons. But they're missing the point of the commercial aspect that feeds into that. Who is going to create this demand signal or what is going to create this demand signal? I think many of us thought that perhaps the opportunity in the Ukraine crisis would be that that this demand signal would be created both in terms of production and in terms of um, improving uh, shipbuilding and, and delivery uh, capability and capacity. But a year later, I'm not sure, at least I'm not seeing it, that clear message being delivered, you know, comments from Cottle and others notwithstanding. Uh, Brian and then Sal, I mean, how do we get to a clear demand signal that speeds the whole process up? Unfortunately, um, history would suggest it will take some calamity for that demand signal to be generated, that um, um, the, the well-intentioned and very effective legislative moves that uh, Dr. Sal just uh, described that that led up to our appearance in World War II, um, the statesmen and the legislators uh, that uh, that were in Congress at that time, uh, they don't seem to exist right now. And there doesn't seem to be that level of, of seriousness in which, uh, uh, with respect to the, the enabling legislation that's required in a democracy short of a calamity to create the resources. Um, we are whistling past the graveyard right now. So I, I am a little down on our ability to anticipate this in the way that our forefathers did in the 1930s with the current way things work on Capitol Hill. I think it will take a calamity at this point. So if, if I could jump in here, you know, Caudle bashing industry at um, SNA. Uh, the CNO bashed industry at SNA. The secretary prides himself, Secretary Del, Del Toro prides himself on bashing industry and did so again at SNA. This is really cool. The, the factor missing in all that bashing is the fact that there's a common customer with all this industry. And that customer has so many problems to begin with that it's so convenient to just leave them, leave the customer out and trash the, the folks who are just trying to execute. Uh, that's, that seems way out of balance. And the, the painting with a broad brush really, uh, I find very disturbing and, and it doesn't help anything. Uh, saying industry needs to do more and industry, okay, well, which industry? 
some some industry is performing pretty well. Some industry is is getting better. Some industry is remains a problem point. But but painting with a broad brush to characterize the whole thing really doesn't help anything. I, I find it very very unhelpful. Um, the shipyards are not equal. Uh, the politics may be that you know we have to uh, the the department has to essentially kowtow to certain factors in Congress because they represent the people that they represent and they want they they want to say that their their shipbuilders are the best. That's not always the case. It absolutely is not the case. And all these yards are individual. They're they're they are different. They're not the same. And there's more factors in it than just that. You know. Chris and I went down to the Gulf Coast last uh, summer, and we're going to be making more trips again this year. Um, among other things, we, we spent a day at Ingalls. Uh, in the past, we spent a day at Austell and Mobile. Um, what we saw there is absolutely not the narrative that comes out of Washington. And because it's not the narrative that comes out of Washington, that's not the narrative that too many Washington-based media report on. So there's this Washington-centric, political-heavy, you know, blame-pointing uh, angle that comes out of D.C. that is not the case when you actually go to the scene and, and you look at things. Um, the yards are, some of them are really cranking. A lot of them have made major investments and are simply waiting for the demand signals. So when they say, well, we need industry to put them, you know, CNO goes all over and over, we need industry to, 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 restructure itself to be able to, to build things. And until then, we can't order them. Well, if you don't order them, they're not going to restructure themselves. <clears throat> That's sort of the supply and demand part of Econ 101. Um, industry is actually getting ready for that demand signal. They're waiting for your demand signal. You tell them what you want. They will, they will size themselves. Now, of course, there, there are limits to that. But it has to begin somewhere, and it begins as it usually does with the government. The government has to throw money at it. Somehow, somewhere, an industry responds. They're not, they're not altruistic. So that this is, I find it a really, it's a, it, it's a fad right now. It's something that's coming out of the Department of the Navy at the highest levels to bash industry for this. Industry is kind of perplexed. It's too broad a brush. There are points where, where the complaints are true. There are points where that's not true, and it's not true. Not even, not even opinions, factually untrue. Um, but, but let's, I tell you what, let's let's uh, move a little bit over to to what we talked about at the top. Um, Brian, you just wrote a big piece on the uh, light amphibious warfare ship, the Marines' new shiny floating toy that uh, they want to build. Um, the, the ship has been pushed back originally a couple of years ago. They were going to order the first one this year, 2023. Uh, it's now been pushed back to 2025. Um, it's, it's a controversial vessel. It is, uh, people aren't sure exactly what it's going to offer. Uh, the Marine Corps is a requirement for 35. The Navy right now is planning to build at least 18 in the first tranche. Um, Brian, what are your thoughts on this? This is, this is a new ship. Remember the last new ship the Navy uh, put in production? Uh, well, as right now they're doing the frigate, Constellation class frigate. Before that was the littoral combat ship. Now it's the little light amphibious warfare ship, which is championed by whom? Who's behind this? Is the department behind this? Is the Pentagon behind this? Is this a codified plan? What, what's the well, situation I, I, as you um, see it? 
the champion, the champions of this platform are the Marine Corps, specifically General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, who came into office in the summer of 2019 with a plan. Uh, I've never seen a service chief come in in my cognizant time looking at these things with a better developed plan. He, he said, this is where I want to take my service. I want to go this direction. And um, uh, he has encountered a lot of antibodies. There's no question about it. But he's a brilliant man. He's got a lot of brilliant people working on this stuff. And they created a, a series of concepts of operation that I was really attracted to, one of which is this expeditionary advanced base operations, littoral operations in a contested environment, a lot of important stuff. But the bottom line is they want to kill ships from the shore during wartime. They want to kill airplanes and missiles from the shore during wartime in conjunction with a, uh, as part of a maritime component commander, uh, C2 structure. I think those are really important ideas, and I've been watching how they implement them. Um, they wish to be able to put dispersed, distributed groups of Marines ashore to perform these functions and to supply and move those Marines with the light amphibious warship. So light amphibious warship is an enabler for these other things. As I peel the onion as to uh, the, the requirements, what they wanted of it. I, I began to be a little bit uh, leery that the, that the requirement wasn't going to meet the mission. But I didn't have any idea of the degree to which I was right about that until I saw an article that was referenced in Ronald Rourke's December uh, CRS study on the law um, an article that had a, a discussion with the Marine Corps Combat Development Center or command, Commanding General Heckel, where he talked about these things not operating when the shooting was happening, that they would bed down, that they would go to hiding places. And I was thinking to myself, what prospect does that have for resupply for Marines uh, who will be shooting and who will be shot at? because that's why we want them there, right? We want them there to do wartime missions. And so that if they're there doing these wartime missions, they will be targets. They will be shooting and, and eating and drinking and needing parts and grease and ammunition and all of those things. How are we gonna supply them if these things are bedded down? So I, it, there was a, just a big logic gap there that I thought, Delaying the program for two years was a good idea and that I wanted to ask some questions publicly so that those people who have to respond to them have to respond to those things. Is, this, is the chip as it's currently, uh, currently specced um, fast enough? Uh, is the, is the, are there specifications specifically the 3,500 miles of range? Is that realistic? What does that mean? Why are we specking it to that? This, a lot of people talk about how well that's how far it is from Hawaii to Guam uh, or Guam to the first island chain. And it's like, wait a second, that's not how we want to use this thing. We want to use this thing to go from island to island in the Southwest Pacific. 
If 80% of the missions are going to be less than 1,000 miles, why are we specking it for 3,500 miles? Maybe we could get more speed and less. There's lots of things that, I, that, I, that I'm sure really smart people thought about, and that I'm only coming late to the party. But the two years that we have now to study this, I think we really ought to uh, analyze those questions and more. Over. Sal, I want to push it to you. Building on Brian's comments, can you even really have a thoughtful discussion about law um, without figuring out first your larger amphib uh, strategy and, and how and where you want to build and what you want to build. And then I would even ask, can you have this discussion without figuring out first your larger logistics and combat support requirements, which we don't, which we seem to be behind on and don't seem to have a, uh, a definite plan on How should all this fit together? Yeah, I, I think one of the problems you have, so go back to Berger and what he wrote. One of the things that struck me about Berger, and I, I agree with Brian, it was this was an uh, amazing document that he wrote, very you know well thought out, except for one area I found, which was one paragraph on the maritime prepositioning force, which was, that was it. And it really didn't say much beyond the fact that we're going to relook at this. And one of the things is, what are you selling to get law? And Brian did a great job in his defense, one piece on that. You're selling off amphibs, you're selling off tanks. But more importantly, one of the things you're selling off is sea lift capability. If you look at deploying Marines, how they deployed in the first Persian Gulf War and ever, they do it on amphibs. They tend to do it on amphibs, but the follow-on comes on sea lift, either off the prepositioning fleet or when the prepositioning fleet phases back into a sea lift role. They're losing that. We've lost one squadron in 2012. We're going to lose the legacy ships, the ships that were built back in the 80s now because they're over 40 years old. And so you're probably going to go down to maybe one brigade afloat, whereas we used to have three brigades afloat, which I understand is a huge cost for the Marines. They want to cut that down because it's a very expensive proposition from the do. But those ships are vital to bring out the Marines beyond the initial landing. So if you put these Marines on the first island chain, they've got to get resupplied. They've got to have logistics coming out for them. And I think that is the big question that hasn't been demonstrated yet. They can demonstrate a law by borrowing an army LSV and, and seeing how it works. That's easy enough to go ahead and do. If you want to design a law, go get the LST out of Evansville, Indiana and re-engine it. And you've got yourself a, a law. You're ready to go. But the issue here is the follow-on. How do you do this? Because if you look at what we did in the Persian Gulf War, we put two brigades of Marines afloat on the 4th and 5th uh, uh, MEBs. We also put all the follow-on equipment on prepositioning ships coming in behind them. Same thing in 2003. We had to bring the Marines out on that. And this adds to a sea lift issue that is floating behind the scenes that no one looks about. The story that I think went under the radar of everyone recently was the fact that in a routine redeployment of forces to Europe, USNS Gordon, one of 18 LMSRs, sailed for Europe, got out about a thousand miles and had to limp back into Charleston and then be towed towed back up to its lay birth because it had just come out of a shipyard in Mobile, Alabama and completely lost the plant and crashed. And this is one of the 18 premier platforms that we would use to reposition our forces overseas. And I understand the Marines forward deployed aspect about this, but the, you got to be looking at the whole picture. And I think that's a problem that we're selling short right now. Both of these concepts, the law, the sea lift, there's, there's a little bit going on in the, in, in the, in the, in the recent budget about uh, the base the defense actors passed about sea lift. Everybody talks about it. Not much is happening. A little bit is happening. Um, then the military seal of command and Marriott are already taking some of these ships out of service and having them scrapped, uh, the older ships. So there's actually a decrease going on right now. Um, the law nominally is also about lift, albeit smaller pieces. So 
is there is there an is there an appreciation at higher levels a fundamental appreciation for the importance of these things? You know, the, this is you know the beans, bullets, and oil aspect of, of warfare. Nobody really wants to buy this stuff because it takes away from the shinier objects. But on the other hand, when 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 the crap hits the fan, this is what really makes it work. This is what happened. What this is how you do it. Um, both of you. I mean, start with Sal and and, and Brian. Is there an appreciation at the at fundamental appreciation for the importance of this stuff? It's really not that expensive compared to the really big ticket items like an F-35 or an aircraft carrier or a submarine. But yet you got to spend it. No, you do have to spend it. And, and one of the problems that we've seen happen is when the military basically militarized sea lift and it basically became a dedicated service and they didn't really count on the U.S. merchant marine to do it. They bought the baby, you know, uh, they, they, they're, they're responsible for it now. And so they've got to commit to it. When the LMSR program came out, they had to commit $6 billion to build 15 ships and convert five, but they had to put that money in a national defense seal fund so that the Navy couldn't grab it and use it for building other vessels. The, the Marines, when asked to build uh, new M, uh, MPS ships after Persian Gulf War, didn't want to, they, they prioritized amphibs over that. And so the problem you have is that relationship in without a, a strong commercial industry, a strong industrial base, you are really uh, kind of hindered in your ability to deploy overseas. The idea that we can do it with just our sea lift fleet, that just the gray hulls maintained by MSC and Marad is wrong. You need a commercial fleet to build up to it. And that commercial fleet feeds into your industrial base. It feeds into all aspects of it. Again, look at the Japan, China, and Korea. They don't just have large shipyards. They have pretty good navies, uh, good, robust navies where they're building commercial ships, they're building vessels, and they're doing it. We're not. We're not building commercial vessels. Every ship we build is a one-off, you know, one of a kind, maybe two of them. They're works of art. They're not, they're not ships because when, when you're going to build something that's individual, you're not putting the infrastructure in place to build another vessel. And I think that hurts us a lot going forward. Chris, I think that military leaders, at least the ones I talk to, take take it seriously but sometimes i think the um i think they that that the problem is so big and so hairy that it um keeps them on top dead center it's hard for them to get off top dead center on it um and let's face it uh one of one of sal's great achievements in the early 90s and i got to see it at military sea lift command shortly thereafter was the fact that we did in fact pick up our military and cart it halfway across the world to the deserts of Saudi Arabia. Um, and that there was a very robust response from the international market to help us do that. And that reinforced in a lot of people this, I think misplaced sense that yeah, we'll get what we need. When the pig lies over on her side, the little piglets will come, come running up. Um, that's, that, that's an interesting theory. I don't know that you want to bet on it, but what it does, the insidious part of that, that Sal, I think, does a great job of talking about, is that when you get rid of that civilian shipping, shipbuilding base, your military base suffers accordingly. This is basic Mahan. I wish BJ Armstrong was here. Mahan's been taught, you know, we like to make fun of Mahan, but Mahan talked about what goes into what goes into a maritime nation. And this commercial side of it is a part of it. 
and we've and we've lost sight of that. In the time that we have left, I, I want to wrap this up by combining the the discussions that that we've had um, over the last two weeks. Um, there has been news on the um, Select Committee on China that um, our mutual friend, uh, Mike Gallagher, Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin uh, will be the chairman of. Uh, there was a great uh, Washington Post op-ed by George Will uh, talking about the committee and, and talking about the importance of the work that Mike Gallagher is doing. Um, and then this week, the Navy League put out its 23-24 uh, uh, policy statement. Is it going to take a broader committee like the Select Committee uh, on China to shine a light on all of these, um, you know, seemingly one-off issues to get people to focus? And is it going to take organizations like the Navy League to just beat on doors on the Hill um, to make make these rise to the level of importance that you know we and others in the navalist community uh, think they are? Brian, I'll start with you, and then Sal, um, I'll, I'll go to you. I think the China committee that Congressman Gallagher is going to head up, I looked at the names. I've looked at the names. I look at some of the projected names uh, on the Democratic side. I think that it is a bunch of very serious people. I think they, they will. I think that. Um, I mean, I think Gallagher is more talented a leader than he and even than he is a legislator. And I think he'll he will lead that group to goodness, whether they get listened to or not, is ultimately is, a, is, the, is the question. I, I don't know. I don't know that they're going to get listened to. I think if they are able to provide some, leg some ideas for legislation uh, that makes sense and that can be broadly uh, um, popular across the aisle, we'll get things done. Um, I think one of the things that you, you didn't mention, mention, though, is that in the 23 NDAA was the Commission on the Future of the U.S. Navy. Um, I think that uh, that activity has the potential to also shine a light on some of these things. And if you read the enabling legislation, um, it's a pretty detailed, though that committee is going to, that, uh, that commission is going to have a lot of work to do because it's a, it's a very well thought out um, uh, uh, task list. Bottom line for me, though, is I am down on the ability of a minus presidential leadership. I am down on the potential for the legislative military industrial complex to reach good, uh, good conclusions and move more money into important places without additional uh, uh, external influences. And by that, I mean the, the security situation. I did, I did not read the Navy League's report yet, so I hope Sal did. Sal, your, your thoughts on some of these external you know, factors, whether it's the Navy League's lobbying effort, whether it's a China commission, whether it's the Navy commission, are they gonna be able to pick up these issues and, and you know, create the change that we need? Well, I, you know, just talking about the Navy League's uh, report real quick. I, I mean, I was kind of disappointed in that I thought the section on industrial base and merchant marine was kind of a repeat from what they've done in the past. I mean, they're calling for expansion of the Jones Act, maritime security program, uh, uh, talking about cargo preference. They're talking about building new sea lift ships. They're talking about acquiring 
uh, existing hulls. I, I think, you know, uh, Admiral Fogo at the Center of Maritime, uh, Maritime Studies has brought on some new people, some new non-resident fellows, some who are in the industry, some who have advised on the industry. So I'm hoping to see a lot more come out of them in the future. I think this is just a, a report they do annually, and I think it hasn't really taken hold yet that. I think there's a lot of visibility much more than we've had before. The supply chain crisis has caused a lot of visibility regarding shipping on the commercial side. We saw passage of the Ocean Shipping Reform Act in the last Congress, which was bipartisan across the board. It was one of the few things you saw come out that was really not a lot of contention. And it was chaired by by two different people. I mean, you had, you had a, a Republican from North Dakota, uh, uh, Dust, uh, Dusty Johnson, and then you had uh, Garamendi from California, who are on the edge of the spectrums right there, put this piece of legislation together. I'm hoping to see that on the domestic reform side. I think there's a lot more recognition of how vulnerable our supply chain, ocean supply chain is to a lot of factors out there. And that may be a kick that's needed. Uh, you know, there was an influx of cash. We're seeing some commercial ships being built. Matson just contracted at Philly for the construction of three new ships. But there really has to be some reforms to promote commercial shipping. And that's going to take some leadership in in Congress to go ahead and do that. Obviously, we lost a, a huge advocate on both the Navy and commercial side with Elaine Loria, but she may be heading over to that committee to relook at the Navy. Uh, I think we need to really broach out and look at that. And so I think the visibility is there in areas of Congress we have not seen before and on local, state, municipal levels than ever before. You know, when Brian did his little tour around Maryland talking about things, I think now, I mean, people in not just Maryland, but everywhere around the country are aware of this importance, but it's got to be hammered home. Education, I think, is one of the key things, and we need to do it. And one of the things, I, I, a big problem, is i add one last thing here, is one of the reasons I think Navy admiralties don't, admirals don't tackle this issue is because it's outside their wheelhouse. It, it, it deals with business. It deals with economics. It deals with a lot of things they don't do. My buddy John Conrad over at GCAM just wrote a piece, and he says, we're suffering from sea blindness, and we really are, and we got to do better at educating people about that. Sorry, Absolutely. It's the professor in me. It comes out. Absolutely. Well, folks, that is all the time we've got today. This has been you know, obviously this discussion continues. It goes on and on and on. We've had uh, we're lucky to have had two great navalists and maritimists. Is that a word? No, it's not a word. Um, on today, um, <laughs> navalist Brian McGrath and Professor of Maritime History Sal Mercagliano. And as always, we highly recommend Sal's video blog, What's Going On With Shipping? Because darn it, not enough people know. Folks, thanks a lot for being here. Now hear this. Now hear this. You know what that means. It's time for this week's Squawk. This week, Mr. Cavus sees something else in dramatic images put out by the world's biggest navies. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, I am a big believer in the power of images. I'm not alone. Most of the world's major navies work very hard to put out videos and pictures showing the power of their weapons. Big guns shooting, smaller guns shooting, missiles whooshing out of vertical launchers, missiles ripple firing from close-in weapon launchers, really loud automatic weapons, missiles blasting from the sea, arcing through the sky in beautiful and yet awesomely sobering displays of power. So cool. Lots of fire and smoke, and even better with videos, noise. The undisputed leader of these productions from a naval point of view are the U.S., Chinese, and Russian navies. You got a missile, we got a missile, you got guns, we got guns, the videos seem to be saying. A year ago in particular, 
The Russians almost hourly put up firepower demonstrations on state-controlled media and on social media platforms, clearly an intent to intimidate Ukraine. Ironically, Ukraine is still standing battered but defiant, but I digress. After a while, the videos and pictures all sort of look the same, but it's not just the bang and blast of the US Navy's images that have a certain sameness. It's also their setting. It is always a beautiful sunny day in the US Navy videos. No wind, no white caps on the ocean. Usually the ships are hardly moving. They sometimes even appear to be stopped at sea or maintaining bare steerage way at three or four knots. Gunfire practice against inflated red targets, widely known as killer tomatoes, shows sailors aboard ships that are barely moving, shooting at targets only a few hundred yards away that are simply floating on the water's surface. Wow. The warfighting prowess of being able to hit such targets, well, it eludes me. I also can't really imagine that combat engagements are going to wait for beautiful weather on perfect days with calm seas. If these images are really meant to intimidate, I'm still waiting for the shots of ships maneuvering at 27 knots, pulling tight S-turns through three-foot waves in a driving ring, trying to shoot down an incoming anti-ship cruise missile. That might give me some confidence, but we never see that. Is it because, you know, they don't show us the good stuff? Or does the Navy not push its warships to train in all weather conditions? I don't know for sure, but anecdotally, I often hear the reasons we don't see that sort of dirty weather imagery is that there isn't any, that that's not the way sailors practice the art of warfighting. Hearing that does not give me confidence. I really hope it's not the case, but a first step toward giving me reassurance and trying to deter those who would do us harm would be to show us you can hit those targets from ships being driven hard on a really crappy day. Well, thanks, Chris. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavalryships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavalryships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.